of it, and I kind of freak out a wee bit with this, when God speaks and he only gives you part of the story. And he said to me, I have to kick off today with some funnies. I thought, what's the point of this? And he gave me some specific things to do. And I thought, what is the point of this? And it wasn't until this morning that he spoke to me and said, for a particular reason. And I'll come back to that. So the funnies, the reason I'm panicking about this is sometimes when you're being funny in church or trying to be funny is more realistic. Trying to be funny in church, some people think it's hilarious. Some people didn't get it. And some people are offended. That's the truth. That's the truth. So at the risk of offending people, I'll be praying, Lord, don't let anybody be offended. Don't let anybody be offended. Please don't let anybody be offended. Anyway, to kick it off, we're looking at Daniel chapter 1. And specifically, the kind of title of the sermon is, In the World, But Not Of It. That's what Daniel chapter 1 is all about. And that's really, if you like, the theme of Daniel where we're in the world, but we're not of it. The phrase you've probably heard many times before, and uh, I'm going to be preaching through that today. Our culture, our Christian culture, collides with the culture of our nation. Last year I went to the Edinburgh Festival. I always go to the Edinburgh Festival. I say always, I didn't go this year, so that's a lie. <laughs> um, Used to go at the Edinburgh Festival, and one day last year, I went to see six comedians with one of my friends, one after another, and I was brokenhearted because all six comedians took the mickey out of Christians. We are now a minority group in society, so they can poke fun at Christians, and they ripped apart Christianity, and I was brokenhearted. So sometimes when our culture collides Christian culture, and where our nation's culture's going, it's difficult. That's where Daniel was, that the cultures were colliding. They weren't mutually beneficial. They weren't mutually complementary. They were divisionary. They were opposites, if you like. So I'm going to start off this morning with a joke from Kevin Bridges. Anybody know Kevin Bridges? Scottish comedian. And he was talking once about, um, he was actually talking about bouncers outside nightclubs and restaurants. Do you remember going back, say, a generation ago, there were some fancy restaurants you couldn't get into unless you wore a tie and you weren't wearing jeans. You would actually be refused entry. Does anybody remember that? Or is it just me that goes to these kind of places? <laughs> I remember on a night out once with my friends, my non-Christian friends, we went to a, a, a nightclub and I was refused entry because I had training shoes on. Fine, I went home. <laughs> Watched match of the day. It was brilliant. <laughs> Kevin Bridges was telling a joke about, uh, kind of talking about the, um, the bouncers at nightclubs and restaurants and things like that, how they take a little bit of power upon themselves and they love it when they refuse entry to anybody. He says, you know, and they'll do it to anybody. He says, if Jesus came back just now, it's interesting that comedians always touch on Christian culture, they're curious about it, but he says if Jesus came back today, he says they would even refuse Jesus' entry to a nightclub, they would say, I don't care who your dad is, pal, you're not getting in with sandals on. <laughs> I think that's funny. <laughs> He's always trying to say, ah, I know the owner, I know this guy, I know that guy, I don't care who your dad is, you're not getting in with sandals on. Well, at least some people laugh, that's good, we're off to a good start. <laughs> We actually had a great funny start this morning. We're in the, the prayer time here. And the funniest man in the church, Robert Cook, has the official title. Robert wanders into the kitchen, singing at the top of his voice. What are you singing, Robert? Oh, what a beautiful morning. <laughs> oh, what a beautiful morning. The thing is, I've always held Robert Cook way up there in terms of his musical talent. That bubble was burst this morning with a tone-deaf rendition of Oh, what a beautiful morning. Robert, why give us a couple of bars now? <laughs> so, when I was fine, I like to illustrate sermons. And this is the only illustration picture I could find of Daniel chapter 1. And I actually looked at it and I thought, that's rubbish. <laughs> and it was bizarre. I believe God has a great sense of humor. You believe that? He gave us a great sense of humor. He invented everything. And... 
The times that I've probably laughed most in life is when I've been off on doing missionary trips, uh, I've had the privilege of sharing the gospel in 15 countries, and when you're out there on the front line, spiritually it's hard and spiritually it's intense, but I've never laughed so much at the same time with the guys I've been with. It's been brilliant. And I often think and reflect on Scripture, what was it like for Jesus with the 12 apostles? Three years they spent together. I'm pretty sure there was an embarrassing moments. Peter singing one morning, oh, what a beautiful morning. And the rest of the boys going, he can't sing, listen to that. <laughs> oh, but he can play the saxophone. I bet he can't sing. <laughs> so I felt God spoke to me and said, have a caption competition with this picture. So you ever heard of those things? You ever seen them? People put up a picture and say, what's the funniest things that you can think of when you see that picture? So tell you what, I'll, I'll let you say, if anybody comes up with a caption by the end of the sermon, in fact, I didn't have to say it out loud, you can come and tell me, but I've got five that I came up with. This might go down like a lead balloon. <laughs> caption number one. Now, look at this picture. Study this picture. It's not a great picture, is it? And we're going to come to the story in a minute. Caption number one. Oh, wait a minute, mate. You can't come in here with a silly party hat on. <laughs> Four guys are wearing the silly party hats. No? The other guy, isn't he? Right, I did go down like a lead balloon. <laughs> when we get to the story, you'll understand more of number two. Guy with a hand up saying, wait a minute, we ordered four salons and five pints of water. That must be for another table. <laughs> Number three, sorry buddy, no beards allowed. <laughs> Number four, I don't know where you're going, Grandpa. This is a student's only party. It's getting loud, that's brilliant. <laughs> Lastly, that food looks awesome. High five. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. That's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you, Father. <laughs> right. <laughs> Enough of this alanity. But if anybody can think of a caption for that, come and speak to me at the end of the sermon. So let's turn to God's Word with a smile on our face this morning. Daniel chapter 1. Let's read together Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel the name Belteshazzar. That's a belter, isn't it? To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal foods and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord and King who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The King would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard 
whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. So a lot to learn from this passage from Daniel. So first, some historical context. God allowed Judah to be overrun by the kingdom of Babylon. For a hundred years before that, God said people like Isaiah and Jeremiah to speak to a deaf and blind Israel, Israel who was watering down their faith and wandering away from God and from God's word. And God kept on speaking to them to say, this isn't going to turn out well. I will judge you. And then I will send a savior for you. So for hundreds of years, that message was coming and coming and here it was, Judah was overrun by the Babylonians. 10,000 Jews were taken out of their own homes, their own land, and taken to a foreign land and told to infiltrate with the foreign culture, to be trained up for three years, some of them, to read their literature, to understand their gods, their culture, and to serve the foreign king. Terrible situation. God foretold it. Why did God allow it? Why did God allow it? This was God's people. The Jews traditionally were God's people, although they were wandering away. There was a, a remnant left, a few left, who were still faithful to God's word, as we can see from Daniel himself. But why did God allow it? His people to be overrun, besieged, defeated. I think the answer is this. That when the chips are down, when times are hard, when difficulty comes into our lives, we seek a savior. We cry out for it. And Israel would cry out for a savior because things had got so bad. How did we get here? Oh my goodness, we walked away from God. Do you ever look at our country and can I say that? How did we get here? How did we get here? So we're going to look at a little presentation on um, Scotland's heritage. Okay, Daniel, I'm going to give you a thumbs up and you can move on to the next slide. Any second now. Okay, so let's find out. What is Scotland's nature uh, and history and culture with, with God, with Christianity? Okay, Daniel. 1,600 years ago is when Christianity came to this country, to our soil, 1,600 years ago. That's even older than Robert Cook. <laughs> so, St. Ninian was the first, walked over the border from England and brought in Christianity. He preached the word and signs and wonders followed. Hallelujah. Next one, Daniel. This is the, the oldest Christian artifact in Scotland that was created in Scotland. This is called the Latinist stone, which is found down at Whithorn, 
in the Dumfries and Galloway. And what it says is, we praise you, the Lord. And the guy that's done it is Latinus, son of Barvados, age 35, and his daughter, age four, made a sign here. And it's got Christian symbols on it. So they're making a statement to say, basically, for, our, for me and my household, we follow God. 450 AD, that's been dated to. I thought it was interesting. Next one. Yeah. St. Columba then came over from Ireland, converted a lot of the Picts on the West Coast, and he set up a school for missionaries in Scotland and wrote over 300 books teaching Christian faith. Wow, that's 1,500 years ago. Amazing. Next one. St. Mungo, at the age of 25, founded the faith community of Glasgow. Biggest city now in Scotland was founded by a 25-year-old missionary. Again, preaching and teaching and signs and wonders followed. Absolutely fantastic. God was with that young guy. And that's uh, St. Mungo's Cathedral, which is Glasgow Cathedral, pictured there. Okay, Daniel. Next one, St. Mirren. I used to work for St. Mirren um, for four years in sports psychology. And I've only through that did I find out the story of St. Mirren. St. Mirren was, again, a missionary from Ireland who came over and converted a whole lot of Picts up the west coast of Scotland who would share testimony, preach, and teach, and signs and wonders followed. God worked through them. And whole clans were converted through St. Mirren. Daniel. Now, the date of this one uh, is up for debate amongst historians, but 740 AD, St. Rule brings the remains of St. Andrew to the east coast of Scotland. Has anybody heard the story of what that, how that happened? So, rumor has it, not that I've talked to anybody about this and they've like shared the rumor or anything, but um, the story that goes with this is Bishop Rule was the leader of a faith community in almost the Middle East, Eastern Europe. And God spoke to him in a dream to say that the Muslims were coming and they were coming to destroy his faith community. He was to pack everybody up in a boat and they had the remains of the apostle St. Andrew. He was to pack them all up in a boat or boats and they were to sail and God would tell them when they were sailing where they were to sail to. In fact, he sent angels before them to guide them to a strange shore, he said. So they were guided through the Mediterranean up around the coast of Portugal, into the English Channel, up into the North Sea, and they were guided to the shore of what we now call St. Andrew. And that was how Christianity came to the east coast of Scotland, that far up in Fife and beyond. And that came from St. Rule, um, who brought, reportedly, the bones of St. Andrew with him. Okay, Daniel, next one. 832 AD, Scotland becomes... A Christian country. The f well, hey, yes. Well done, Barbara. Was that Barbara? Excellent. Well, try that again. That wasn't allowed enough. <laughs> so, this is 832 AD. This is 1,200 years ago. The faith community from St. Rule, from St. Andrews, had been sharing the Christian uh, message with this guy, King Angus of Scotland. And the night before he fought against the English, one of the many times that we went up against the English, um, he prayed for the first time and said, God, if you are real, give me a sign that you're real. And he looked up to the sky. He felt he heard a voice saying, look up. And he looked up and he saw two white clouds converging. And he says, that, that's what the, the real community were telling me was how St. Andrew died that he wasn't good enough to die on a normal cross. He wanted a, a separate cross. So he saw this Christian symbol in the sky. And he says, okay, God, I'm listening. If we win tomorrow, I will make this a Christian nation. And they won. We defeated the English. I think it went to extra time and penalties. But we beat them. And we became a Christian nation. King Angus II makes Scotland a Christian nation. Okay, Daniel, next one. The Declaration of Arbroath in 1320, this is almost 500 years later. Now, Declaration of Arbroath, everybody that's really kind of nationalistic loves this because it's all the nobility in Scotland, they're writing a letter to the Pope, and part of that Declaration of Arbroath says, whilst 
any of us Scotsmen are alive, we will not bow to English rule. That's what the, the national folk take out of this declaration of our broth. Actually, the declaration of our broth is a statement of faith that says they're writing to the Pope and they're trying to get Scotland to be recognized as independent and they say to the Pope, we've had a succession of 113 Christian kings in Scotland for 500 years. We are a nation under God. It's an historic document, one of the most important in our nation, and it says that we've had 113 Christian kings from King Angus II to the declaration of our birth. We are a nation under God. Okay, Daniel, next one. 1451, University of Glasgow, which is the fourth oldest university in the world, was founded by one of my ancestors, Bishop Turnbull. <laughs> <laughs> so I put this in for a couple of reasons. One, it shows that it's recognized, it was recognized as one of the best educational facilities in the world for hundreds of years, founded by a faith community, Christians who wanted to, to teach and enlighten people. Wonderful. Christianity shaped our nation. Next, Daniel. 1517, big spiritual revival gives rise to the Protestant movement where, uh, where people protested against corruption in the church. They wanted to worship God in a certain way, in spirit and in truth. And so they protested against the church. And so we had the covenanters, people who wanted to covenant with God. So next one, Daniel. We all know about John Knox. Eventually, the Scottish Parliament bans mass and approves the Protestant confession of faith. So our nation has made a decision, a legal binding decision on how we worship God. Not many countries have done that, but our country has. Next one, Daniel. And in 1581, we drew up a covenant, the national covenant, as a contract of worship with the whole nation of Scotland a contract with God. No other nation on earth has written a contract with God. They said, we are a nation under you, our heavenly father. We worship you in spirit and in truth. A national document that was passed by the Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh. The old parliament, not the new one uh, with the weird concrete building, but the old one up beside St. Giles Cathedral. If you've never been there, you should go in there. It's a fantastic place. You can go in. It's, it's the court of session now. You can, you can walk in. You can walk around about the, the great hall. And in that great hall, all the political leaders of Scotland made the decision to pass the vote that we would have this national covenant, a contract with God. Amazing. I think that's, I think that's fascinating that we have a contract with God, the people of Scotland, the nation of Scotland. And then 1611, Scottish king, James VI, who was also James I of England, wanted everybody to have the Bible. And so he gets the King James version of the Bible translated and put out there for ordinary people in the UK to have the word of God. Not in Latin, but in English. The language of the common people. So a Scottish king brought the word of God into our hands. Wonderful. Next one, Daniel. After James VI lost the throne and Charles I came back into the throne, um, he wanted to change how Scotland worshipped. He wanted to make it a Catholic nation again. And so people queued up to sign this uh, covenant that we had drawn up many years before. People actually queued up, traveled to Edinburgh and queued up so they could sign a document to say, I want to worship God in spirit and in truth. Fascinating. Okay, Daniel. And then after that, we started to send missionaries all around the world. People like James Ramsey, who went to the West Indies, converted a whole lot of slaves in the island of St. Kitts and came back. And he was one of the founders of the abolitionist movement to get rid of slavery in the British Empire. Changed the world. Awesome. Next, Daniel. Guys like Alexander Duff, the first missionary to go to India. Shipwrecked. Is that three times? Twice on the way. Shipwrecked twice. You kind of think, oh, 
It's not my day, I'm going home. <laughs> Called by God to serve God and take the word of God to an entire continent. And he didn't. He set up a medical school and training places uh, for education, etc., to change the people of India, to bring education, to improve their quality of life, bring the word of God, to change their world. People like David Livingston, who opened up the road for missionaries to go to Africa, to sub-Sahara Africa. I have a lot of friends in Nigeria through a fellowship that I'm involved in. And my goodness, the, the organization I'm involved in, the Nigerians is the biggest group. We've got half a million members worldwide in the Businessmen's Fellowship. But the Nigerians have got the most. Uh, they've got 150,000 members who set up dinners to have testimony and bring people to faith. Absolutely fantastic. And now, all these other countries, Africa, Asia, are sending missionaries back to us because we need it. We are no longer a nation under God. Daniel. Glasgow's motto, the biggest city in Scotland, used their motto, the official motto and emblem for Glasgow in the times of Queen Victoria, British Empire, and all of that. Glasgow is one of the greatest cities in the world. And the motto of the city was, Lord, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of the word and the praising of thy name. The words of St. Mungo that founded Glasgow. Isn't that great? Amazing. But now, Glasgow City Council had a vote just over 10 years ago, and they changed the motto to let Glasgow flourish. They took Christianity out of it. Stripping out God in every area of our society. Just like the Jews were doing for a hundred years before the Babylonian Empire came and swallowed them up. Where is our nation going? Okay, Daniel. We also had the richest man in the world. Well, a second richest man in the world, Andrew Carnegie, in 1901, when he sold all his shares in the railroads in America uh, he became second richest man in history. Richest man in history at that time in 1901. Um, but uh, John D. Rockefeller um, became richer just a few years later. But he gave 70% of his fortune away to charitable causes and Christian causes because he said, it is my duty under God. God has given me this. He has called me to give it away. There's a whole lot of churches up and down Scotland where organs were installed through Andrew Carnegie's money. Did you know that? Something over a hundred. Just as an example. Anyway, next one, Daniel. And my people like Eric Liddell, who famously won the gold medal by being obedient to God. He was going over there to run in the Paris Olympics, run the hundred meters, but he wouldn't run because it was on the Sabbath. Uh, some of the British Olympic Committee hated him for doing it. You're an embarrassment. You're embarrassing us little, they would say. But he got an opportunity to run the 200 meters, not his, um, uh, 400 meters, sorry, not his uh, discipline whatsoever, but uh, he ran. And not only did he win the gold medal, he broke the world record. And just before it, one of the American athletes came up and gave him a piece of scripture from the Old Testament that says, he who honors me, I will honor. And he ran with it in his hand. The scripture in his hand. And he says, Eric Little says that when he runs, he feels the, the pleasure of God. He can feel the Holy Spirit on him when he runs. He said that. Um, and went to be a missionary in China. Could have came back and had his rugby career and played for Scotland again. Uh, he was an international, but uh, went to serve God in, in China and died in a prisoner of war camp in China. Just about a month before the end of the war as well. And then people like Reverend Donald Caskey, one of my heroes, who, my, this is the last book that my dad read. There's a book called The Tartan Pimpernel. You know, there was the Scarlet Pimpernel at the time of the French Revolution where all the, uh, the nobles were getting beheaded with a guillotine. And uh, there was a guy called the, the uh, Scarlet Pimpernel who would get them out of France to save their lives. Uh, Donald Caskey was the Church of Scotland minister in Paris when the Germans invaded, um, he went south, he went to Marseille, he lived on grapes, he went all the way on his bicycle, all the way from Paris to Marseille, fleeing the Germans. He lived on grapes from the vineyards, 
and he got there, and um, he believed God called him to help get people out of occupied France. In the whole of World War II, 3,000 uh, Allied troops escaped from prison of war camps and got back to the UK. Donald Caskey arranged the passage for over 2,000 of them. Two-thirds of them, he was used by God. Three times he was offered safe passage back to, the, to Scotland, um, twice on a boat, once uh, in an airplane because the, the Gestapo were trying to get him and kill him. Um, he prayed about it, and three times God told him no. The two boats sank, and the plane was shut, shot down. He would have died. He was actually arrested by the Gestapo uh, in a, one of those mock trials, false charges against him. He was sentenced to death, but he didn't die. A German major who was a preacher of the gospel before the war, God spoke to him, and the German major falsified papers and got him released from his Italian prison. Fantastic, fantastic stories. God is a supernatural God. He speaks, he changes nations, he changes people's hearts, he changes our lives. Fantastic. Next one, Daniel. There was a book came out called uh, Glory in the Glen. Great book, if you want to read it, I've never read it, I just got a, stole a quote from it. <laughs> um, Scotland arguably has the richest heritage of evangelical revi revivals of any nation in the world. It's a whole history of revivals in Scotland. I remember hearing, I've heard some of the uh, recorded accounts of people from the Western Isles, where one night, for example, people convicted by the Holy Spirit at midnight, 200 people went down to a church and prayed for repentance because they were convicted of their sin. The Holy Spirit was so strong. And at that time, for the, for the weeks following that, the presence of the Holy Spirit was so strong that as fishing vessels passed within 10 miles of the coast, people would fall to the deck of the ship under the power of the Holy Ghost. Recorded. God loves Scotland. And his heart is broken right now. Next one, Daniel. His heart is broken because within two generations, our culture has changed entirely. Stevie was preaching last week to say, you know, in the context of Daniel, Daniel was taken to a foreign land and into a foreign culture, a godless culture. For us here today in Whitburn Pentecostal Church, we are in our own land, but we are experiencing a godless culture. This culture has came into our society within two generations, where addiction, depression, and anxiety are at their highest levels ever in this nation, officially. Gender and sexuality is questionable. Big question mark. If you want to be a boy or a girl, you can be a boy or a girl now. It doesn't matter how you were born. It doesn't matter what your preferences are sexually. You can do whatever you want. That's what our society says. And you can't say anything against it. Freedom of speech is gone. If you speak out publicly, Scripture, you can get into trouble. People are losing their jobs for it. People are losing political office for it. People are being asked not to come back and speak in schools because of it. Freedom of speech is gone. I've been working in schools last year. I worked with over 2,000 children in schools last year. And I looked into the international studies on adverse childhood experiences, the 10 traumas of children, and the statistics for the whole of the Western world now, 20-odd countries, all this uh, analysis has went on, and the number of children, anybody up to the age of 16, the number of children that have had no traumas, no sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, physical neglect, emotional neglect, children with a loss of a parent through separation or divorce, or a parent in prison, or seen domestic violence, the children who have not experienced that are in the minority now. It is the majority of children that have experienced these things. That's our nation. Godless. Sports and TV personalities are millionaires, whilst nurses and teachers use food banks. That's wrong. It's all wrong. The world is upside down 
it is wrong. Unless you think I'm talking nonsense. Next one, Daniel. Back to the dodgy pictures. (laughs) Daniel's story. Let me go through this quickly. In verse 8, Daniel asks not to eat the food that will defile him. Why would the food from the king's table defile him? There are two reasons why the food would defile him. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar, when he prepared food for his court, the first portion of the food was presented to his gods, the false gods. So it became unclean food. That was reason number one. Reason number two, a lot of the food was prepared from unclean, ritually unclean animals, according to the Jews. So Daniel knew God would not be happy with them eating this stuff. How he reacts is entirely key here. And this is a big lesson for us, how he reacts. He shows great wisdom in the situation. Because he gets through this and still honors God without causing a scene, without causing a fuss. He doesn't say, oh, wait a minute, I'm not touching that. It makes a big scene. Sometimes we, we get filled with righteous anger in society. And actually, I believe we overstep the mark sometimes as Christians, and we don't represent God particularly well in this situation. We have a face like thunder. I'm not happy with this. I'm not happy with that. Let's go to court over this. A lot of specific examples I give you, but we've not got time to go through all of that. Daniel handles this with tremendous wisdom. He asks permission. He plays within the rules of the society that he's in. He doesn't say, I'm not touching that. I can't have that. Doesn't he lecture the guy about uh, his own personal beliefs or what the scripture says or what he th- does with God, anything like that. He, he just asks permission. He doesn't have the face of thunder. He says, is there a way? Could I eat something else? Could I eat the vegetables and drink the water? So he comes with the right attitude. He tries to keep the guy on side. He can't break the rules of the society. It causes a problem. And yet Daniel negotiates a way through where he can live within that society and still be faithful and obedient to God. We need to learn a way that we can do that. We need to seek God's wisdom in situations rather than stand up and go on our soapbox and preach to people that don't want to hear. We need to do things with God, not for God. I've preached on that before, but it's so important. Daniel did this with God. It was so tricky and difficult in that society, and yet God found a way for Daniel. And he makes a suggestion. It's always good not to give an ultimatum in a situation, but to ask a question. Is it possible? How about if we do this for 10 days? Reasonable request. The guy says, I could lose my job. I could lose my life if you guys are not following the king's command and you look worse than everybody else. He says, well, put us to the test. Let's do it for 10 days. That's not a long period of time. And they do it. And after 10 days, Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is the names that the Babylonians gave them, they looked better than the rest of them. They were more nourished than those that drank the king's wine and ate the king's rich foods. And so the guy that was in charge of them says, no problem, you can go with this. So he finds a way through. Awesome. Verse 17 in Daniel chapter 1, I find incredibly important that because Daniel was obedient to God, and found a way through this. As a reward for their obedience, God blessed them with great wisdom. So much so that they were 10 times wiser than anybody else in the king's court. That made them stand out as excellent because God empowered them to be like that. 10 times better. And people would say, What is it that's different about you? And eventually, Nebuchadnezzar fell in love with Daniel's devotion to God. And we'll find out more of that in in the rest of the chapters. But God blessed them because of their obedience with great wisdom, and they excelled. The question for our church today is, 
are we being obedient to God? When I say us as a church, yes, collectively, but also individually, are we being obedient to God? Because if we are, God will bless us greatly. Absolutely, He will. Let me share some verses here that put this whole in the world but not of it into context. 1 John chapter 5 verse 19 says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So we're in this world, but we're not of it. The Bible says that this world is Satan's domain. It's the enemy's playground. That's what it is. So we are in the world, but we're not of the world. We're not under its rule because we are children of God. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, do not conform to the patterns of this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Don't be in the world. Be in the world, but not of it. Let me read um, John chapter 17. Sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes I wonder, Lord, am I praying right? Am Am I talking to you in the right way? I don't know. Am I? Does anybody else feel like that sometimes? John chapter 17, the entire chapter, is Jesus' prayer. So many little examples of Jesus throwing up prayers, like when he blessed the bread and and the the fish before the the feeding of the 5,000, before he raised Lazarus from the dead, short prayer. I'm praying out loud, Lord, so everybody knows it's, this what's about to happen it comes from you. But in John 17, just before he's arrested, the last time that he's with the 12 apostles, let me just read this prayer to you. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they've obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, and they too may be truly sanctified. 
My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you're in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be as one as we are one, I and them, you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know you that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Tremendous words. Sometimes I think I prattle on a wee bit when I pray. Jesus prayed some long prayers as well, which is good. It's comforting to know. But he prayed, saying that we are in the world, but we're not of it. And his prayer is that God's love would flourish through us. And he says that his glory, God's glory has been given to us, that he would be in us. Saying that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, has been given to us. I think that's amazing. Absolutely fantastic that the power and the glory of God has been given to me and to you and to all of us. I find that absolutely amazing. That the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that power that conquered death forever, that grants all of us eternal life, that power that raised people from the dead, that made the sick well, that gives words of knowledge and words of prophecy and of great teaching and of generosity and encouragement and hospitality, all the goodness and greatness and excellence of God is available to all of us. It is His gift to all of us. So how do we live in this world but not be of it? We have to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit and through God's love. That's what marks us out as different. That's what should mark us out as excellent, as Daniel and his three compadres stood out as being 10 times better than anybody else in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. Do you stand out in your workplace? Do you stand out in your family and in your social groups as being 10 times better? Because that's the potential that God gives you. We should love better than anybody else. We should show, next one, Daniel, the spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. And everything that we do, we should be 10 times better at showing love, joy. Thanks for bringing it this morning, Robert, with your rendition of Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. Peace. Patience. How's your patience getting on? Do your children rejoice and say, I have the most patient mother and father in the world? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the patience of my parents. It is truly world class. <laughs> Ten times better at kindness. Ten times better at goodness and faithfulness. Maybe you could use the word obedience there. Gentleness. Ten times better at self-control. If you're not... They ask, why not? Because God gives you the power to do it. The power is available to you to be 10 times better at all these things. One last verse. It's a verse I'm throwing down as a challenge. Acts chapter 17, verse 6. When Paul and Silas come to a new town, 
They're on a great missionary tour, big car journey around Eastern Europe, bringing the gospel with them. And wherever they go, just like the guys that we saw, St. Mungo, St. Mirren, um, all these guys that came to Scotland and brought the word of God, they preached the word, they testified about the goodness of God, and signs and wonders followed them. The same with Paul and Silas. And when they come to this new town and people hear the preaching, the word of God being preached, and Jews respond to it, and they come forward in, in, in droves, and the leaders, the Jewish leaders said, we're not having this. So they arrest Paul and Silas, they bring them before the Sanhedrin, and the guy that's arrested them says this, these men, these people who have turned the world upside down have come here. Don't you just love that? That those who are filled with the Holy Spirit turn the world upside down. That's what we're called to do. The world has turned itself upside down with its ungodliness, selfishness. We have to turn it the right way back up. God has called us to turn Whitburn upside down. And he gives us the power to do it. And he gives us the love to do it. He gives us the example. He calls us to do it. There's nothing stopping us apart from us. I look forward to us fulfilling God's word, fulfilling God's purpose for our lives, fulfilling his purpose for this church and turning Whitburn upside down with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, where people will say, what's different about these guys? They're 10 times better at this than anybody else. They have the love of God. They have the power of God. Musicians, you want to come back up? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for sending Jesus to save us, to pay the price for our sins so that we may be righteous in your eyes, that we may have communion with you, that we can be filled with your love and with your presence, with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the work that you've called us to. Help us, Father, work through us that we may fulfill the work that you've called us to. Thank you for the example of Daniel, for his obedience and for his attitude. Thank you for the wisdom that you granted him and his pals. Father, we ask for that same wisdom. We ask for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Help us, Father, to empty ourselves of ourselves and be filled with you. We glorify you, Lord, and every good thing that comes from the work of this church, Father, it is yours. We praise you, we worship you, and we honor you for it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.